Hi, I'm Mike Paul, and welcome to this podcast of articles from Ars Technica, a presentation of Airs LA, the audio internet reading service of Los Angeles. You're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. We have three articles for you today. Our first article is by John Brodkin, published on August 17, 2021. iPhone keyboard for blind to shut down as maker cites Apple abuse of developers. An iPhone keyboard for blind users will be discontinued, according to the app's developer, who alleges that Apple has thrown us obstacle after obstacle for years while we tried to provide an app to improve people's lives. FlickType includes an Apple Watch keyboard and the iPhone keyboard intended for blind and low-vision users of VoiceOver, an Apple technology that can speak the key a user selects. FlickType's Apple Watch keyboard will continue, at least for a while, but the iPhone keyboard will be disabled. It's with a heavy heart today that we're announcing the discontinuation of our award-winning iPhone keyboard for blind users, the FlickType account on Twitter wrote yesterday. FlickType is developed by Costa Eleftheriou, who recently filed a lawsuit alleging that Apple used its control over iPhone app distribution to induce him to sell FlickType to Apple at a discount. He says he refused to sell the app. The last straw for FlickType's keyboard extension came last week when LFTheriou submitted an update that fixes various iOS 15-related issues and improves the app for voiceover users, FlickType wrote. But Apple rejected it. They incorrectly argue again that our keyboard extension doesn't work without full access, something they rejected us for three years ago. Back then, we successfully appealed and overturned their decision, and this hadn't been a problem since, until now. FlickType said it contacted Apple nine times last week with no success. At this point, they seem to be ignoring our attempts to contact them directly, despite previously explicitly telling us to feel free to contact them if we need further clarification. The app's keyboard extension will stop working after future updates. We wish to keep providing the last working version that includes the keyboard extension, but Apple makes it impossible to stop automatic updates for individual apps. So unless you stop automatic updates for all your apps, you will soon lose the FlickType keyboard extension, FlickType wrote. The app's App Store listing says, FlickType keyboard is designed to be as accessible as possible on both iPhone and Apple Watch, featuring large keys, high-contrast colors, prominent visuals, and effective voiceover feedback. FlickType can speak back to you for a completely eyes-free writing experience, enabling people who are blind to type just as fast as everyone else. The American Foundation for the Blind's Access World publication wrote an article in October 2018 about how FlickType solves an annoying problem for blind users. When I first began to use a smartphone, I found that the most cumbersome aspect was the touchscreen keyboard, Access World Editor-in-Chief Aaron Priest wrote. Finding the correct key is fairly simple, but the delay as you wait to hear the name of the focused key adds a surprising amount of time to the act of typing. Priest found that 
FlickType is much more fluid to use than the default keyboard, and that when FlickType predicts what I have typed correctly, I find it increases the speed of my typing around 30% or so. A National Federation of the Blind article called FlickType a much faster experience than the standard iOS keyboard. Apple rejected the app update on August 13th, sending Eleftherio a note that says, We noticed that your keyboard extension does not function when the full access setting is toggled off. To resolve this issue, please revise your app to ensure that your keyboard extension is fully functional with or without full network access. Eleftherio showed ours the message from Apple, which contained a screenshot of the FlickType keyboard that asks users to please enable full access for FlickType under the iOS Settings app. Without full access, FlickType supports regular touch typing, where you explore the keyboard and then lift your finger to enter the desired character, a support page says. Enabling full access unlocks tap typing, in which blind and low vision users can lightly tap where you think each letter is, and FlickType's powerful algorithm will correctly guess the right word almost every time. Tap typing allows users who are blind to not have to wait for feedback for each key, effectively allowing them to type as fast as anyone, LFTheriu told us. He pointed out that other keyboards, such as the Microsoft-owned SwiftKey, also ask for full access to enable extra capabilities. Requiring full access for certain additional features is nothing new, he told ours. Apple's App Store reviewers don't seem to realize that the iPhone keyboard works without full access as long as voiceover is enabled, LFTheriu told The Verge. They'd have to try it as a voiceover user, something they don't seem to bother doing. I've had several rejections in the past because the reviewer didn't know anything about voiceover, he said. When asked if he'd continue providing the iPhone keyboard if Apple reverses the update rejection, LFTheriu told ours that Apple would need to do more than just reverse their decision. I've already gone to great lengths over the years to personally convince them to reverse dozens of their wrong decisions in the past. They'd need to at least admit that they've been treating me and thousands, millions, of other developers unfairly and unreasonably for years. Admitting this would be the first step towards them actually reducing and eventually stopping this developer abuse. Eleftherio said he isn't sure how long he'll keep developing the Apple Watch portion of the app. I'm still going to try to provide the watch keyboard, for now at least, he told ours. Developers' complaints about the Apple App Store have resonated with some lawmakers, as Congress is considering legislation that would force Apple to let users sideload apps and access third-party app stores. We contacted Apple today, and we'll update this article if the company answers our questions. This is not the first public dispute between FlickType's developer and Apple. LFTheriu calls himself a professional app store critic, and has worked to identify scam apps that trick users into making payments that might otherwise go to legitimate apps. LFTheriu's California-based company, KPaw, sued Apple in March, alleging that the iPhone maker threw up roadblock after roadblock to make it difficult to get FlickType onto the App Store. Apple was trying to buy FlickType from LFTheriu, and evidently, 
thought plaintiff would simply give up and sell its application to Apple at a discount, the lawsuit alleged. The complaint, which was filed in the state superior court in Santa Clara County, continued. Once plaintiff finally got its application to market, plaintiff's application vaulted to the top of the App Store sales worldwide. Then copycat and scam applications surfaced, driving down plaintiff's sales. What's worse, these scammers vaulted to the top of sales in the App Store by submitting fake reviews to elevate themselves in Apple's system. Plaintiff complained to Apple, and in response, Apple did next to nothing, despite its stated policies forbidding this precise type of unfair competition. While Apple enticed plaintiff to develop and publish applications for sale in the App Store based on Apple's promise of a safe environment, Apple does not in fact police its App Store, undoubtedly because it profits massively from rampant developer misconduct and consumer fraud. By this lawsuit, plaintiff seeks to recover its losses as a result of and bring to an end to Apple's fraudulent and unfair practices. Last week's app update rejection is the tip of the iceberg, LF Theriou told ours. The big picture is the years-long pattern of rejections, as well as the extremely poor third-party keyboard APIs. Our second article is by Megan Shelley, published on August 29, 2021 how game makers are catering to disabled players. According to a recent study, more than 2% of the U.S. population can't play video games due to poor accessibility options. The same study suggests that more than 9% are unable to enjoy the traditional gaming experience because of visual, cognitive, or physical impairments. Additional research suggests 20% of the casual gaming audience is disabled in some fashion. That amounts to millions of disabled players who are locked out of games because of a lack of support. But after decades in which accessibility options were absent or an afterthought, game developers in recent years have shown an increasing willingness to cater to this audience explicitly. The Last of Us, Part 2, launched in 2020 with a wide array of heightened accessibility options, for instance. Assassin's Creed Valhalla offers multiple forms of eye-tracking support as well as colorblind options for the visually impaired. Last year's mega-hit Hades provided buffing support when your character dies in an effort to match the game's difficulty to the player's skill level. More recently, Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart made waves with accessibility options such as high-contrast backgrounds, shader categories, and speed settings for fans and beginners alike. Many independent game producers are continuing to invest in the hardware, tech, and tools necessary to bring gaming to a patiently waiting audience. Indie maven Aaron Fothergill, the co-founder of UK's Strange Flavor Studio, harnesses the power of gyro camera controls and AR systems to assist the mobility impaired in his flagship game, Airburst. This would also potentially make it playable from a wheelchair for someone with limited dexterity, but the ability to rotate their chair, Father Gill said in an interview. These are just a few prominent examples of a trend that's bubbling up across all corners of the game industry. 
According to researchers at Universal Access in the Information Society, accessibility options in games should overcome three primary barriers. Sensory-impaired feedback, motor impairments, and cognitive delays. In order for a game to be truly accessible, it should meet or exceed standards in each of these categories. The number of development tools focused on providing these considerations is quickly growing, as evidenced by the Library of Congress's Accessibility Research and Developments page. Not every video game maker takes all three factors into account, though. Some studios prefer to follow the bare minimum guidelines, such as adding subtitles or other easy-to-implement features. Others go above and beyond, such as 2018's Celeste or 2020's HyperDot, winner of the Innovation in Accessibility Award. Accessible games encompassing a wide variety of needs assist more than just disabled players, too. Accessibility helps everyone, says Diane Landace, co-founder and programmer at indie studio Accidental Queens, in a Pocket Gamer interview. Thinking about accessibility doesn't only mean catering to an audience with a given set of disabilities or specific needs. It's about making sure the experience you want to create can be enjoyed equally by as many people as possible in as many situations as possible. Accessibility is particularly important for indie developers like Nathan Fouts, founder of Mommy's Best Games. One switch or mouth-powered inputs are important for games like Shoot One Up, which adds a twist to a familiar shoot-em-up genre. According to Fouts, accessibility options should include remappable controls, subtitles, high-contrast backgrounds, colorblind icons and symbols, gameplay speed adjustments, and, of course, difficulty adjustments. These are evident in other games produced by the studio, including Pig Eat Ball, a top-down action-adventure. Software-specific considerations, as in the examples cited above, may be difficult or costly to implement for small or independent development teams. But generalized hardware accessories, including handheld tools and single inputs, can make an enormous impact on the player base without the need for explicit software support. Hardware and software working together can provide the greatest amount of compatibility for the greatest number of players. The Microsoft Adaptive Controller is easily the most prominent example of adaptive controls. With 19 different 3.5mm jacks, it can be mounted for players who cannot hold or manipulate standard controllers. Dozens of different add-on attachments can be plugged into the jacks, making it a well-rounded tool for many kinds of disabilities. Broadened Horizons, an assistive technology company that specializes in gaming, offers disability controls for those requiring hands-free inputs, as well as adaptive handhelds that meet accessibility needs in a variety of games and genres. According to its site, two-step adaptive controls, one button and one joystick, provides access to 100% of games on every console ever made. Tools like the Racing Auditory Display, or RAD, can help blind or visually impaired players navigate racing games and flight simulators. By timing auditory tones with oncoming obstacles, players can complete driving or flying games without much difficulty. New developments in Puff and Sip inputs are changing the ways people play indie games. 
also called adaptive switches. These tools allow players to provide two separate inputs for different types of consoles. Puffing, blowing air into the tube, and sipping, breathing air from the tube, allow for the hands-free input of commands. The future of accessibility may not be altogether clear, but passionate accessibility activists are working long days and nights to bring the world of gaming to diverse individuals. It's their hope, and ours, that the accessibility revolution will one day become the status quo. In time, studios large and small may be opting for a more enjoyable, open, and inclusive gaming future. Our third and final article is by Kyle Orland, published on October 29th, 2021. John Carmack issues some words of warning for Meta and its Metaverse plans. Oculus Consulting CTO John Carmack has been bullish on the idea of the Metaverse for a long time, as he'll be among the first to point out. But the ID Software co-founder spent a good chunk of his wide-ranging Connect keynote Thursday sounding pretty skeptical of plans by the newly rebranded Meta, formerly Facebook, to actually build that metaverse. I really do care about the metaverse, and I buy into the vision, Carmack said before quickly adding, I have been pretty actively arguing against every single metaverse effort that we have tried to spin up internally in the company from even pre-acquisition times. The reason for that seeming contradiction is a somewhat ironic one, as Carmack puts it. I have pretty good reasons to believe that setting out to build the metaverse is not actually the best way to wind up with the metaverse. Today, Carmack said, the most obvious path to the metaverse is that you have one single universal app, something like Roblox. That said, Carmack added, I doubt a single application will get to that level of taking over everything. That's because a single bad decision by the creators of that walled garden metaverse can cut off too many possibilities for users and makers. I just don't believe that one player, one company, winds up making all the right decisions for this, he said. The idea of the metaverse, Carmack says, can be a honeypot trap for architecture astronauts. Those are the programmers and designers who want to only look at things from the very highest levels, he said, while skipping the nuts and bolts details of how these things actually work. These so-called architecture astronauts, Carmack said, want to talk in high abstract terms about how we'll have generic objects that can contain other objects that can have references to these and entitlements to that and we can pass control from one to the other. That kind of high-level hand-waving makes Carmack just want to tear my hair out because that's just so not the things that are actually important when you're building something. But here we are. Carmack continued, Mark Zuckerberg has decided that now is the time to build the metaverse, so enormous wheels are turning and resources are flowing, and the effort is definitely going to be made. 
Carmack used his own experience creating Doom as an example of the value of concrete, product-based thinking. Rather than simply writing abstract game engines, he wrote games where some of the technology turned out to be reusable enough to be applied to other things, he said. But it was always driven by the technology itself, and the technology was what enabled the product and then almost accidentally enabled some other things after it. Building pure infrastructure and focusing on the future-proofing and planning for broad generalizations of things, on the other hand, risks making it harder to do the things you're trying to do today in the name of the things you hope to do tomorrow. And then it's not actually there or doesn't actually work right when you get around to wanting to do that, he said. To that end, Carmack spoke somewhat approvingly of concrete meta-products like Horizon Worlds and Horizon Workrooms, which can be clearly judged on how much value they're bringing to users. Interacting with other avatars and workrooms in particular can be much more enjoyable than staring at a wall of Zoom faces, Carmack said. You've got to actually be using the things to make value from it, he said. Getting workrooms to actually work also required some detailed technical problem-solving to help with unexpected audio processing and latency issues, solutions that can now be applied to many other Metaverse products, he added. But while Carmack identified some good things about the virtual reality co-presence possible in Horizon Worlds, he noted that it's a far cry from the Metaverse of our visions. While chatting with 16 people in a world's room is nice, he said, it's a far cry from something like a real-world conference that could have thousands of people milling about and wandering into sessions and conversations at a whim. Fully creating that kind of in-person conference experience without the need to travel long distances is what we've always been pitching is the value of VR, he said. With that vision in mind, Carmack said he's laying down a gauntlet that we should be doing Facebook Connect in the metaverse by next year's show. I'll be really disappointed if I'm sitting here next year in front of a video crew and a camera in physical reality doing this talk, he said. I want to be walking around the halls or walking around the stage as my avatar in front of thousands of people, getting the feed across multiple platforms. Focusing on a mission of moving Connect into the metaverse, Carmack said, is a concrete goal that will make sure that we're doing something that's valuable to at least us, and then it will very likely be valuable to a lot of other places. Are we necessarily even aiming for all the right targets with the social metaverse? Carmack asked rhetorically. While Meta is understandably focused on the idea of virtual co-presence, a lot of real-world luxury is predicated on the ability to provide isolation, like a private beach or private plane, he said. Sometimes these things that just add people are not always a positive, especially for people that are a little more on the introverted side of things. Carmack also questioned the idea that everything in the metaverse should be built around 3D models and recreations of physical objects, since that risks throwing out the trillions of dollars of assets and software that have been designed for flat screens. Maybe the metaverse is just lots of screens, and 
Maybe there's a screen-focused world where everything that people do with photography and videography just has this amazing place in a virtual world, he said. Everybody can do magical things with video today, whereas not everybody can do that many magical things with 3D modeling and 3D art. Carmack also took issue with the idea of specific hardware being specifically marketed as metaverse-oriented. Metaverse-style applications will work just fine on Quest 2, Carmack said, adding that the facial tracking and other features of upcoming hardware like Project Cambria are not central to the experience and is going to be significantly more expensive. Carmack said he hopes that VR hardware can eventually cover the same wide range of price and quality options that smartphones do, from $50 basic handsets to $2,000 top-of-the-line powerhouses. Carmack's full hour-long keynote is worth a watch for anyone who wants to get into the head of a person who has been immersed in the conceptual and practical worlds of VR and the metaverse for years now. You can also skim through a copy of Carmack's notes for the speech if you don't have time to listen for an hour. Well, that brings us to the end of today's articles. To find out more about Airs LA and the types of programs we offer, follow us at facebook.com slash A-I-R-S-L-A. If you like what's there, please hit the like button. Music for this podcast provided by Hotfire. I'm Mike Paul, and I'll be back soon with more stories from Ars Technica. Thanks for listening.